Uh, my name is Wes, one of the pastors here. Good to see your faces. Thanks for being here today. We're going to do what we do each Sunday, look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, any way to access the Bible, if you would turn with me to our passage today in Matthew 25, Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, and when you found that, if you could stand together with me in the honor the reading of God's Word. This is a difficult passage today. I, I wrestled with this a lot this week and just like how to present this. And yeah, you'll see what I mean in a second. Let's read together. Uh, Jesus says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you now illumine the preaching of your word? I ask for your spirit to move powerfully among us today, to inspire and encourage our hearts, and speak to us in just the ways that we need to be spoken to today. You, you know exactly what that is. And you tell us, whenever you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you send it. God, accomplish that purpose now in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, the tale as the classic song lyrics tell us, is as old as time itself. And one which, if you grew up in a Western or Western-influenced culture anyways, you're undoubtedly familiar with as well. It's a, a rich young prince living in a big fancy castle who is visited one winter's night by an old beggar woman. And seeking shelter from the storm, she offers him a single rose in exchange for his compassion for his hospitality. And the, the prince, apparently, he just sneers at the gift, sends her away, even though she warns him not to be deceived by appearances. But when he refuses her again, 
Suddenly, her ugliness melts away to reveal that she's actually a beautiful enchantress. Bam! Hair toss. Check my nails. She is here now, and, and the prince is now embarrassed. He is stumbling all over himself, trying to apologize. No, no, I, I would love your rose. I'd be glad to have you, but it's too late, right? The opportunity is lost, for she can see that he has no love in his heart. And as punishment, she curses him and everyone in the castle, uh, turning him and transforming him into this hideous beast until he can learn to love or be loved by another. Now, yes, uh, a cue... Hermione Granger in a yellow dress, and the day is eventually saved. But something really interesting that you see repeatedly throughout this story, it shows up again and again, is the way that our actions reveal what's really true about us. Right? Like the prince, for instance, he didn't refuse hospitality to this woman because he wasn't a fan of roses. He refused her because he was selfish, because he was prideful, because he was heartless. Um, that's what was revealed in his not receiving the rose and giving her hospitality. Just as later on, Belle, she, she shows compassion. Her heart softens towards the beast, even though he's her captor. Not because she's got a thing for super hairy guys, but because she's a genuinely kind and compassionate person. It just shows up in the way that she acts. But when you zoom out of the, the details of this story, or really any story of missed opportunities, what you begin to see show up again and again is this very same principle in life. Namely, like how we respond to the opportunities that are presented to us every single day reveals, really it shows us our values, shows us what's really valuable to us. How we respond to these opportunities, it reveals who we truly are at the core of our identity. Which, no, I mean, it's not for a second to say that, you know, a mistaken judgment, a mistaken evaluation means, oh, I guess you're just a prideful, selfish person. No, right? I think we can all look back on our lives and see opportunities where we wish we had responded differently than we had. No, what I'm talking about is really like when you look at the overall pattern of your life, look at the overall pattern of how you respond to these different opportunities that are presented to you, particularly when responding to them is costly to you, particularly when responding to them uh, challenges your conventional ways of thinking. I think that, seeing that overall pattern, that absolutely can reveal whether or not you're a person who, generally speaking, is primarily focused on the well-being of others or the well-being of yourself, which I think is exactly what Jesus is pointing to in our passage today from Matthew's Gospel. Because look again here, these criterion by which these two people are being, these, these groups of people are being judged. Uh, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison, this kind of thing. Uh, aren't those all just like everyday opportunities that they have either acted upon or not? Yeah, right? They're just everyday opportunities to serve the other, but as you clearly see from these two groups, like the way they're divided, according to Jesus, how someone responds to those opportunities over the course of their lives reveals the true nature of who they are, as well as the true nature of their relationship to God and his kingdom. Listen, re regardless of, no matter what their words, no matter what uh, their church attendance, no matter what the Praise 1065 sticker on the back of your car might want to say otherwise, it, it reveals the truth, the actions reveal it. And yeah, like, I mean, 
This is a challenging passage. This, this, is, this is scary to a lot of us. We, we read this, and it can bring up all kinds of questions for us. I mean, first and foremost, someone might want to push back and just be like, wait, 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 I thought, I thought salvation was supposed to be a gift of grace that we receive by faith. This sounds like Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation. What's going on with that? So it brings up these kinds of questions. I think it can also just create fear, creates instability in us initially anyways, uh, much like back in Matthew chapter 7. Remember, Jesus was sending people away who had prophesied and healed and performed miracles in his name, saying, I never knew you. And, we, and we're kind of like, get this panic in us, like, what, what? Uh, and so here, in the same way, if, if Jesus is really describing what's going to go down at the end of time when he returns, which I would submit to you, yes, that's exactly what he's doing here, that this is not a parable, this is Jesus' description of the end of all things. I think it's pretty clear which group we want to be separated into and which one we don't, yes? But again, it's bringing up these questions. Okay, like how can I know that I'm going to be welcomed, I'm going to be part of that group that's welcomed into the kingdom and not sent away to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels? How, how do I know and be sure of that? And, and I'll do my best. I'll do my best to try to answer as many of those questions as I can as we work through our passage this morning. But I think one of the most helpful things to remember that's going to already begin to answer some of your questions and hopefully calm some of your fears as well is to remember the context in which this teaching is given. For if you remember, if you weren't with us, this teaching is given immediately after what Jesus had already been teaching to the religious rulers. He's talking here to his disciples, but he just finished talking to the religious rulers. Remember with these seven woes, really critiquing and highlighting the way they, they had this outward appearance of closeness to God when the reality was that their hearts were damningly far from him. Because here's the thing, and I don't know what other sermons maybe you heard on this passage before, or maybe just what your impression is of it initially, but I think what Jesus is ultimately picturing for us here is actually just the final outworking of what his half-brother James writes in his letter to the church in James chapter 2 when he writes this, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, okay, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So, so yes, I think there's a call here to think about how we respond to the opportunities that are presented to us every day, to try and strive to make sure that those opportunities uh, don't become missed opportunities. What does it mean to walk into those things? I think that's absolutely what's being shown here. But, but more than that, I think the call of this passage, and passages like James 2, is also to consider the way that our actions, how we respond to those opportunities, reveal what's really true about us. They, they reveal the reality of our kingdom citizenship or not, much more than just what our words would say. And in order to help us grasp that, like really take that to heart, and then I pray respond in whatever way the Spirit of God wants to lead us to this morning. I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. We're going to talk about the what of kingdom opportunities and then the who of kingdom opportunities. The what and the who of kingdom opportunities. So if you closed your Bible, Bible app, whatever it is that you're using, would you open it again with me to that passage, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. I'd love you to follow along with me as we dive into this together. Okay, so let's look first of all at the what. 
the what of kingdom opportunities. And, and by what, I don't mean like what are they. I, I think the examples of kingdom opportunities that Jesus gives here are pretty self-explanatory. No, what, what I mean by what is more like what's going on? <laughs> like what is going on with these opportunities that are either acted upon or not, but which then seem to determine if someone receives blessing or cursing from God. What's going on with this? Which is already a challenge to talk about. Um, and this, I think it's probably a bit of the apprehension I felt about bringing this, because the context in which Jesus says this blessing and cursing takes place is judgment. It takes place in the context of a final judgment at the end of time when Jesus returns. And as you see in verse 32 there, all the nations, everyone, everyone, whoever has lived, is going to stand before Jesus. Which is a challenge because increasingly so, in our late modern age anyways, if people believe in a God at all, they certainly don't believe in a God of judgment. They don't believe in a God who would, who would judge people like this. I, I could never follow a God like that. So again, uh, if people be, believe in God at all, God for them is more like a benevolent grandpa in the clouds. Or it's this guy that we've seen so often, cheerleader Jesus. Cheerleader Jesus who, who just wants to encourage you on your journey. You know, he would never do or say anything other than what you already think and believe about any given subject. Problem is that who the Bible presents, who God says Jesus is, is a God of both justice and love. He's both. That's who the Bible presents Jesus as. And, and, and this is, our passage today is just one of many examples of that. But here's the thing. When you come to see the justice of God as both an extension of his love as well as our, our sole hope in this life to avoid or forego vengeance because we can know that justice will ultimately take place for all the injustices that have taken place against us, against those we love, knowing that will happen. When we understand that, suddenly we'll see the justice of God as a good thing and not something that we need to deny or kind of just brush under the rug and not really look at. It's, it's actually a good part of who he is. But even granting that, as I said earlier, we still need to do something with what really sounds like Jesus is presenting a works-based righteousness. I mean, isn't that what he's saying here? If you, if you feed people who are hungry, uh, clothe naked people, uh, uh, greet the stranger, I guess enough, you do that stuff enough, then you're in, right? And if you don't or you won't, sorry, you're out. That, that seems like what Jesus is showing us here, right? Which makes no sense to us, uh, particularly if you've been in church for a while, because, again, thinking about the justice of God, one of the great hopes of the gospel, which we hold tightly to, is that although we too have committed sins of our own against God, which which are worthy of his judgment as well. The hope of the gospel is when we put our faith in Jesus that, that he absorbs the justice of God on our behalf. That's, that's the hope of this. Uh, what, what Paul refers to in Romans 3 when he talks about Jesus as our propitiation, this debt-canceling, uh, wrath-averting sacrifice whom God put forward on our behalf to be received by faith. So, so we trusting in that, and then we read this, and we're like, well, wait, so, so what's going on? So... What is it going on? What's going on with these opportunities? Well, again, I think the first thing that helps us is in remembering, as I just said in a moment ago, that this is a description of the last judgment and not a parable. That helps us, first of all, because it just means we don't need to decode any kind of secret or hidden meaning here. We can just take the words at face value. That is helpful. At least it 
helps us to skip a step, to be able to just get right to what is Jesus saying. Okay, so we've got his words here. Second thing that helps us is in looking at the immediate context just before Jesus' teaching here, where Jesus does actually tell a series of parables, three in fact, all of which have to do with people making the best use of opportunities that have been given to them in preparation for the return of their master. Or in one case, it's the return of a bridegroom. But all three of them are about this same idea, making use of the opportunities we have as we prepare for the return of the master, which I think is really interesting because if parables prepare the heart and the mind for teaching, then those three parables that are all about making the best use of our opportunities as we prepare expectantly for Jesus' return, then that should inform the way we understand these kingdom examples and opportunities that Jesus presents in our passage. Lastly, I think we're helped in remembering the interpretive principle of Scripture interprets Scripture, which means what? Well, very simply, if Matthew 25 was the only part of the Bible that we had, yes, it would be very easy to kind of land on a workspace righteousness. It would really seem like that's what Jesus is teaching. Good news is we have a whole Bible uh, right at our fingertips whenever we need. Um, and so there's all kinds of other places, as well as Matthew 25, a vast testimony of Scripture that's going to reveal, no, salvation really is very much a gift to be received by grace through faith, not a result of works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that no one can boast. So save, but then which means what? It means our passage can't be teaching uh, salvation based on works. Otherwise, Jesus would be contradicting everything else that the Bible teaches us about salvation, not to mention he'd be contradicting what he himself would know about the reality of our salvation, that we could never do enough good works to earn God's favor. So that's, that's the principle, generally speaking, of Scripture, interpret Scripture. We, we use the Bible to help us understand what it can't be teaching in order to know what it is teaching. So where does that leave us? Well, I think it leaves us with the contention that we began with this morning, that ultimately, Jesus is simply unveiling the ultimate end of James's words in his letter, again, where he said, some of you say, I have faith, I have deeds. Okay, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Okay, it's this idea that not that we, our works earn salvation, but they're the evidence of our salvation. Or as the famous reformer Martin Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Which is just to say this, what Jesus is teaching from our passage today is simply that those who have truly been saved by faith, those who are truly citizens of his kingdom will, generally speaking, act on those kingdom opportunities, such as the ones that Jesus are, is describing in our passage as they're presented to us. Okay? Not as a means of attaining our salvation, but on the basis of it. That's generally speaking what will happen. Conversely, those who, generally speaking, ignore or pass on these kingdom opportunities, the kinds that Jesus is presenting here, reveal by their actions or inaction that they are not truly citizens of the kingdom. And when we think about what that means for your life and for mine today, I think it means we need to just really stop and pause. In the busyness and the hectic pace of our lives, to take the time to stop and pause and really do an honest assessment of our lives. In light of the kind of kingdom opportunities that Jesus lists here, although this is not an exhaustive list, but looking at these kind of opportunities that he presents and take an honest assessment of our lives and honestly ask, 
Is my life characterized like that? Is my life characterized, not perfectly, but generally speaking, by an other-centered focus that sees God as the one who's done everything for me, and therefore everything I have is available to him for use in the blessing and service of others? Is that, generally speaking, how my life is characterized? Because, man, if you look at the reaction, again, of these welcomed into the king's inheritance in Jesus' description, their surprise alone reveals they weren't doing any of this stuff to try to earn greater favor with Jesus, to try to shoulder up to him. They're surprised. They're like, what? When did we do that? They don't get it. But if anything, they were just living out their lives as grateful recipients of salvation. That's all that was going on. So is that a description of you? Are you living your life as a grateful recipient of grace and extending that to others? And if not, why not? Why not? Paul tells us in Romans 8 that that God gave everything, literally to the point of giving his own son in the service of us, in the service of accomplishing our redemption. What is it that you, having received and accepted that grace freely and completely undeserved yourself, what is it that you still feel like he is unworthy of being offered for the blessing and the service of others? What is it that you still feel like, I still get to hold on to this as mine? Because I think that's what Jesus is saying to us here in our passage, that our action or our inaction is revealing something really important about us, whether we think it does or want it to or not. Okay, so that's the what of kingdom opportunities. Again, action or inaction that reveals the true nature of our hearts. I think we need to take that honest assessment and say, is that how my life is characterized? If not, why am I not doing that? What's going on in my heart that's, that's stopping me from that? Last thing I want to look at together with you is the who of kingdom opportunities. The who of kingdom opportunities. And where you see this is in a small but actually really relatively important detail in verse 40. If you want to look back with me there. So if you remember here, these righteous sheep on the king's right have just responded with complete surprise at this report of how they'd served and ministered to him in his weakness and distress with their kind of repeated questions of when? When did we do that? How? Oh, why? Okay. And then Jesus says he'll respond to them in this way. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And it's that last part in particular where Jesus mentions these brothers and sisters of mine that I want to focus on for a second. Because there's a tendency when you read this to kind of just actually just gloss over that when you read that. Not really consider what that actually means or or who those people are. Especially when you consider Jesus doesn't include those same words about brothers and sisters of mine when he's talking to those on his left. So we can just kind of gloss over that and presume that what Jesus is presenting here is kind of just a general call to what is often referred to as compassion ministries, ministries of mercy, just like Jesus is saying we should help people, you know, and we should get out there and do some good. That's really what Jesus is saying. But again, if we continue that same, using that same interpretive principle of Scripture, interpret Scripture, we see a number of notable places. Uh, Let's use, for instance, Matthew 12, for instance, where Jesus' mother and brothers are outside a house where he's teaching, and they're calling him to come out. And someone says, they're calling for you. And Jesus says, who's my mother and who are my brothers? 
Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we've got all these examples again and again where Jesus, when he refers to individuals or groups of people as brothers and sisters of mine, he's referring to his disciples or followers of his. Which means what then? Okay, I can already sense the, the bristling in the room. I can just sense the kind of like disgust and really kind of revulsion in the room is this idea that as followers of Jesus, we're only supposed to serve other followers of Jesus. Is that seriously what Jesus is teaching here? Some kind of like kingdom nepotism that we fear is going to just like create even further hatred by people of the church, which they already see as increasingly irrelevant. We're kind of like, man, we can't, that, that's a, such an awful message. So is that what Jesus is teaching? Well, the short answer is yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. It's, yes, he, he, he's speaking specifically here about acts of service done to the least and the lost of his followers. He is. That's who he's referring to. And no, by that, Jesus is not teaching that acts of service like this are only to be done for followers of his alone. Okay, let me show you what I mean. Because upon a more careful reading of this passage, what you quickly see is that nowhere does Jesus actually say acting upon these kingdom opportunities is something that is only to be done for followers of his. Only that acts of mercy and compassion done for the least and the last of his followers are received by him as though they had been done for Jesus himself. That's really all he's teaching in this passage. It's, a, it's, a, it's teaching the principle of how closely and intimately Jesus identifies with his church. Uh, a, a truth that, that you see in all kinds of different places uh, shows up specifically in places like right after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, where uh, Jesus interacts uh, with Saul of Tarsus, soon to become the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He is struck blind by the risen and glorified Jesus as he's on the road there. We read about this in Acts 9. And if you don't remember that or you've never read that passage before, Saul, he's, he's on the way to Damascus to destroy the church, to persecute it, to, to grind this heretical Jesus movement into the ground. There Jesus meets him and says what? Not Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you coming against my people? Stop it. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, it's the same principle here. So as you can see, rather than teaching some kind of members-only model of service, Jesus is instead simply highlighting this same intimate relationship which he has and continues to have with his church right up until today. Service to our brothers and sisters is received by him as though it's service to him. And the other reason we can know that Jesus is not endorsing a members-only ministry is, yet again, if we use our scripture interpret scripture principle, we see countless other places where Jesus himself is serving, helping, healing, teaching, uh, feeding both those who are already his followers, those who are becoming his followers, as well as those who go away having nothing more to do with him. I mean, do you really think the 20,000-plus people that Jesus fed with the five loaves and two fishes all became followers of Jesus after that? No. In fact, if you look at one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see there like a key core principle of what it means to be a kingdom citizen is care for the other, care for neighbor in the broadest sense of the term. That, that's what Jesus says his kingdom citizens are to be about. 
And yet, understanding now what Jesus is not saying, so let's all take a breath for a moment. I think it does now pose an interesting question when you think about what this could look like today, what ministries of mercy within the church ought to look like along with ministries of mercy to those who are still outside the kingdom. It's an interesting idea because I don't know if it's the same for you. I won't speak for you. Um, and I actually don't even have an answer formulated for the question necessarily. But when I think of ministries of mercy, if, if you're like me, I always tend to almost always think of acts of service done to those outside the kingdom. Things that we do to serve people in Jesus' name, all kinds of different things, with the hope that they'll come to know and love the one in whose name we're serving. Much like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify my Father who is in heaven. I tend to think of ministries of mercy as an outward-facing act. And yet, as I reflected more on this idea, as I was kind of struck by this this week, but ministries of mercy to those within the church family, as well as those still outside, it made me immediately think of some of Jesus' last words that he said to his disciples just before he went to the cross, giving everything in service of his church, where he told his disciples this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you hold to the right doctrines that I've taught you. Mm, so if you use the right sermon translation or Bible, no. What is it? If you love one another. Isn't that crazy to think about? What a crazy idea. That Jesus says one of the greatest things we can do as a church to prove the reality of who he is and what he's done in our lives is just to love each other well. Which maybe that sounds like a simple thing. You haven't been in church long if, if that's the case. It's not. It's hard. It's a family. It's filled with all kinds of different people who we've often said we would not hang out with if we didn't have this reason to gather together for the same purpose. Working together, loving each other, it's hard. But Jesus says just doing this alone, lots of other stuff we do too, but just loving each other well says to people, Jesus is our Savior. Look what he's done in our lives. That's incredible. And again, I don't, I don't even have an answer formulated to the question. I'd love to hear your ideas. Like this week, if something inspires you or in the next few weeks, you're just like, you know, this would be a great way we could love each other as a church family. I'd love to hear those ideas because uh, I want to like press into this more, work on this together to just think about how can we do this better. But just as a beginning, just to start us off, I'd love you to just stop what we're doing here and just take a look around the room right now. Really do it. Look around at each other. Look at this gathering of God's people that he's put here together that we call the church. Right? Already we know as we look around the room, we see a variety of different struggles, challenges that we know each other have. We know these things are present. How is the Spirit of God moving in your heart as you look at these people that he's called together here in this gathering of his church to serve some of those kingdom opportunities among us that we have right in front of us right now? Are we walking into those opportunities and loving each other well? Again, not, not to the exclusion of serving that we're called to serve outside the church, but to the inclusion of those who are already citizens of the kingdom, especially with that really cool knowledge that we know now that when we serve each other and love each other well like this, 
the least and the last of the kingdom of God, those actions are also received and blessed by God as though they were done for Jesus himself. That's pretty cool. Well, I don't know where any of this finds you today. Um, my desperate hope and what I asked God for again and again that he would accomplish through our time together in this passage was that we would leave today feeling encouraged, feeling inspired to, to really act upon those kingdom opportunities that we have around us every single day, to press into those things and, and live them out more and more in light of the grace that's been shown to us. Because again, that's really what this is about, just living out the reality of the grace that's been showed to us. That's all we're talking about. So I pray that we just, we'd be inspired to walk out of here and do that today for each other, as well as every kingdom opportunity God puts in our place. And yet I prayed that because my fear was that somebody would walk out of here today feeling completely discouraged, feeling totally crushed under the weight of this passage. Because maybe you look at your life right now, and you know that an other-centered focus, where I see God as the one who's done everything for me, and so everything I have is his to be used in service and the blessing of others, that doesn't describe me. That's not where I'm at. And so rather than feeling inspired, you could walk out of here just feeling shamed, feeling um, maybe dread and foreboding that if you were to stand before Jesus today, maybe you're not exactly sure which group you'd be separated into. If I can all encourage you, if that's where you're at this morning, one of the first things I want to say to you is that if we're being honest, um, we all feel that same way. Okay, We all feel that same worry because, as I just said earlier, there's not a person here who doesn't know and can like recount for you kingdom opportunities that were presented before us, and, and we didn't take them. We didn't walk into them. That's all of us. Okay, So you're, you're not alone in feeling that way. But secondly, I'd want to encourage you to consider that rather than wanting you to leave here feeling shame or judged or unworthy, maybe the whole purpose of your being here today, maybe the reason God got you up and brought you to church today has been just really about through the work of his word and his spirit, bringing you to a place of realization, Bring, like waking you up to a self-conscious awareness of, of where you are so that now at least you have the ability to do something about what you now recognize, about this place of just spiritual apathy. You can see it now, at least. So that gives you the opportunity to do something, because that's one of the greatest hopes of this passage, actually. One of the great blessings is that Jesus' description of this final judgment, when the time for acting on kingdom opportunities has passed, that that's a future event. That's a, a yet-to-be-realized reality, which means if you know your life isn't characterized like this right now, in the way that Jesus says is blessed by his Father, that demonstrates the reality of the grace that's being shown to you, if you know your life, you, you haven't been living in this way where you're, you're, just, you're, you're demonstrating this reality, and you know you're just living in a way that you're happy to accept the grace of Jesus towards you, but you're largely unwilling to offer it to anyone else, there's still time to do something about it. That this, this description hasn't happened yet. So we can do something with that opportunity if we want to. I mean, think about even where we began this morning. That even that heartless prince was still given an opportunity after ultimately being cursed with an outward appearance which really just matched what was true on the inside of him. 
Even he was given an opportunity to do things differently and so to avert the threat of eternal cursing. Which is just simply to say maybe what feels like the sting of today's word is actually just another kingdom opportunity that's being presented to you. That you now have the ability to once again either accept and act upon or miss out on. Which will it be? So we're going to go into our time of quiet reflection now. To, to listen to the Spirit's voice in light of what has been revealed to us in his word this morning and see what he wants to say to us. For some of you, uh, this is going to be a time of just reflecting on, hey, what are the opportunities that you're placing in front of me? Help me to see them. Help me to walk into them. To, to live my life as an expression of the grace that, you've been, that I've been shown both to those inside the church family as well as outside. I want to demonstrate the reality of grace in my life. Help me to do that. But for others, again, if today's word has felt crushing, if it's felt exposing or cursing to you in any way, my prayer is that for you, you would actually hear the Spirit's voice of compassion. You'd hear his voice of grace and then receive his empowerment to maybe make today the very first day where you take your very first steps towards an other-centered existence that extends the grace and the mercy that saved you to the least and the last all around you. So let's go to him now, and then in a moment we'll come and take the Lord's Supper together.